Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 11, What's It Like Elsewhere? So, since I'm a literature nerd, I'm going to start this episode with talking about the famous French story of Candide, which basically involves the eponymous hero traveling all around the world getting into all kinds of trouble. And every time things get rough, his know-it-all blowhard professor buddy, Pangloss, reassures him that, as bad as things may seem, this is in fact the best of all possible worlds. At some point, eventually, Candide loses it and asks Pangloss basically if this is the best of all possible worlds, what the heck are the others like? Now, despite being a know-it-all blowhard professor myself, I have never claimed that the U.S. public education system is the best of all possible worlds. In fact, according to the United Nations Educational Development Index, we're the eighth best of all possible educational systems. Although by some other global know-it-all standards, for example, those of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, we do a bit worse, somewhere between 15th and 36th, depending upon how you measure these things. But this episode is not an exploration and debate about the relative merits of all these various indices. Although that would be super interesting, it would probably merit its own entire podcast. Rather, this episode provides a chance to take a sneak peek at how some other countries structure their educational systems. I mean, about every other episode, I remind you, my listeners, that the U.S. doesn't have a singular system of public education, that we're a patchwork quilt of 13,000 different towns and districts, each of which to a large extent sets its own curriculum, and each of which is responsible for funding its own schools, leading to vast inconsistencies and inequities. And I make a point of saying how we're pretty much the only country that does things this way. So, at long last, let's take a look at a couple of countries from that long list of nations who do it differently. I freely admit from the outset that this is going to be very much a quickie overview. I could go into great depth about the development and features of each of these nature's educational systems and risk boring my listeners, or I can just touch upon some quick facts about each, highlighting their differences from U.S. public schools in particular. I decided to go for option two, also because of the very practical reason that I've only done some cursory research here. I'm fully prepared to accept the slings and arrows of listener comments from folks who know all these nations' school systems much better than I do, to which I say, sure, bring it on. I'm always eager to learn more. So without further ado, here is a glimpse into some of those other possible educational worlds. Let's start with merry old England, whose system of grammar schools, not to mention its creation of of Puritan and Lancasterian educators, provided a lot of the blueprints in one way or another for what would become the American system of public education. You can find more on that process in our first two episodes of the season. The history of English public education also followed the American trend, beginning with scattered local schools, which then expanded into a nationwide mass education model, thanks in large part to a belief that impoverished people could be uplifted and made more obedient and less criminal through state-sponsored training in industriousness and obedience. Of course, England's a heck of a lot older than the USA, and has had various institutions of formal religious schooling since the days of the Saxons in the 7th century, and all sorts of private institutions that grew increasingly secular after the Enlightenment. Eventually, in the 17th and 18th centuries, you started to see the rise of what were called free grammar schools, which, as I explained in the season opener, were not free in the sense that they didn't cost money to attend, but were free in that if you had the money, you could attend, regardless of what religion or regional identity you ascribed to. This is the origin of the confusingly different definition of public school in England. 
By British usage, public school means one of these private independent schools that, in theory anyway, admits anyone from the public who can pay. As early as the 1550s, England had a bunch of what were called charity schools as well, which, as the name implied, enrolled people who couldn't pay. And Queen Elizabeth herself established parish schools, which were basically tech folk schools that hooked up poor people with apprenticeships. By the 19th century, charity schools had taken on the positively Dickensian name of ragged schools, because apparently charity schools sounded insufficiently humiliating. By the 1830s, about 200 years after the first taxpayer-funded public schools started spreading up in the U.S. in cities and towns here and there, the British Parliament voted to establish taxation-funded secular schools for the masses. Although, as the Scots are quick to point out, Scotland had been doing this for a few decades already. So I guess I should be a little more careful about when I say England and when I say the UK. Compulsory education throughout the nation was declared over time in a series of acts, including one in 1870, another in 1876, one in 1902, one in 1918. It wasn't until 1944 that all schools, elementary through secondary, were free at the point of delivery to all children in the United Kingdom. Although there was similar opposition in England to federally centralized control of public schools as you saw in America in the 19th century, the federal government in the United Kingdom, unlike that in America, succeeded in consolidating all those thousands of individual school boards and church-run schools under a centrally run and funded system. This probably reached its apogee in 1988, when the national curriculum was established for all children between 5 and 18. Although, again, Scotland and Northern Ireland have their own centralized curriculum, because why should things be simple? Okay, so how else does education in England differ from that of the USA? Well, cosmetically, students wear uniforms, which is almost unheard of in U.S. public education, except in some charter schools. There are also no publicly provided school buses in England. Students and their families are responsible for their own transportation to school. Given that the U.S. spends collectively about $20 billion, that's billion with a B, a year on school transportation, that's a heck of a price tag that English schools don't have to absorb. There are no middle schools in England, and instead of saying a student is in grade 2 or grade 9, you say year 1, starting with kindergarten, all the way up to year 13 for what we in America would call high school seniors. I rail against tracking and ability grouping a lot in this podcast. See Season 1, Episode 7 for an in-depth and heavily researched rant on that topic. But I have to admit that the U.S. has nothing on the U.K. when it comes to grouping by perceived ability level, as measured by standardized exams. It's pretty universal there. School is divided from an assessment perspective into four key stages, with exams to test student learning at the end of each stage, in the core subjects anyway. These tests fall under the umbrella of the General Certificate of Secondary Education, or GCSE. This system or a version of it has been in place since the 1950s, with a revamp in the 1980s to change them from norm-referenced tests. In other words, did you do better than the hypothetical average student and your score is uncurved based on that, to a system more like what most state tests in the USA now use, namely a system based upon how many specific learning targets students can demonstrate they've met. I won't get into the difference between O-levels and A-levels and AS-levels in England because, frankly, I'm afraid I'll mix them up with the Owl and Newt levels from Harry Potter. I will say that 91% of United Kingdom students graduate high school versus 77% of the United States. But on the other hand, about 66% of American graduates go on to attend college or university versus somewhere between 40-50% to 50 in the UK. The UK, in turn, however, has a better college completion rate 
whether that's a result of more rigorous screening and tracking or much more affordable college tuition is up for debate. So that's England in a pub nutshell. Let's cross the channel and go to France. Public education in France was born of the revolution. In 1833, the Second French Republic committed to funding free education at the local level. While in the US and England, the motivating force for universal public education was a desire to keep kids off the streets and away from criminal pursuits by teaching morality and work ethic, the original French conception of public education had a somewhat different mission. That was to battle the forces of religious education, which had predominated throughout the country's monarchist history, tied up as it was with ideas of royalism and all those things that the new free Republican France was trying to get away from. They would have a secular system of schools. Although the Catholic Church had a few things to say about that, factions in France would spend the next half century engaged in that battle, with the Church and the Jesuits and royalists on one side and socialists and so-called radicals on the other. The radicals won out in 1881 and 1882, when the Jules Ferry laws came into effect, named after sitting Prime Minister Jules-François-Camille Ferry, which made secular free education compulsory throughout the entire country. The laws included outright banning all but selected members of the clergy from holding any teaching positions, and the Jesuits were not among the selected group. Ferry wasn't satisfied with just establishing educational control in France, though. He's the leader credited with really accelerating France's move into global colonial empire. In a famous speech before the Chamber of Deputies in 1884, Ferry justified expanding French rule as quote, a right for the superior races, because they have a duty to civilize the inferior races, end quote. Even though most things sound better in the original French, I'm not sure even the beauty of the French language can save that one. Ferry proceeded to direct the French military to conquer lands and peoples all over North Africa and Southeast Asia, and among other staples of colonial rule, oversaw the establishment of French-style schooling there. A year later, though, Ferry was voted out of office by a public that was pretty upset at the fact that, hey, racist subjugation of millions of black and brown people costs a lot of money. Yeah, he got elected to the Senate right after, and actually became Senate president, but the press kept right on excoriating the guy. And just as Americans nowadays worry that the inflammatory rhetoric of outlets like Breitbart and Newsmax might prompt readers to engage in violence, that's pretty much what happened when a fellow named Aubertine shot Ferry in 1887. Ferry actually survived the bullet wound and would go on to live another six years, but then the wound got infected or something like that, and he died from the complications. But Ferry had ideological successors, at least when it came to the issue of religion and education, who continued to campaign against church influence in French schools, culminating in a 1905 law that fully separated church and state, no special exceptions allowed. And by the way, for good measure, they closed down thousands of religious schools and, and confiscated all kinds of property and lands owned by the church. Eventually, more moderate leadership prevailed, and these days there are plenty of independent schools in France, most of them Catholic schools. But the majority of French children still attend state-run, entirely secular public education. In fact, any religious symbols or garments are explicitly banned on all school premises. Like England, students in France are sorted early into either a general, technological, or vocational track. Unlike students in the UK, students in France don't usually wear uniforms, at least not these days. And unlike most other countries in the world, the school week in France is only four days long. Of course, the school days themselves are quite longer than the norm, starting at 8.30 and going often until 4 or even 5. 
Wednesdays are often half days, but then Saturdays are sometimes half days as well. Oh, and that lengthy school day, it includes a lunch period of up to two hours. And it may come as no surprise that French school lunches are generally considered the best in the world, featuring all sorts of gourmet meats and cheeses. But not, thank you, any wine. Unlike their British and American counterparts, French schools don't use letters for grades, but rather a point system, usually topping out at 20, with 10 being the minimum required for a pass. Many French schools post students' grades publicly. No pressure. While most European school pedagogy is very teacher-centered and lecture-based, France has a particular reputation for embracing these old-school methods. But speaking of old, let's now move across half the planet to Japan, where stable, formal education systems were in place since at least the 6th century. You know, when folks in England and France were busy getting used to life without the Roman Empire and with a whole lot of warring tribes and plagues and generally not fun times? Well, these Japanese schools were either Confucian Chinese in style or, later, based in Buddhist temples. But the idea of a secular, let alone free, public education didn't catch on in Japan until the reign of the Tokugawa shoguns of the 17th century. The Tokugawas had unified Japan through military conquest after about two centuries of being warring statelets, and set about trying to create a unified, countrywide system of bureaucracy and services to unite the Japanese people, and that included a system of education. Japan had a highly stratified class system at the time, with various levels of noble-born samurai holding all the political power. If you were among that 8-10% to 10 of Japanese who were samurai, congratulations! Among your other perks, you now got a state-sponsored education in reading, writing, math, and calligraphy. Taught in Buddhist temples, although increasingly those temples became divorced from Buddhist religious control. If you were a commoner, well, you still had to pay tuition to a temple, or else hire a private tutor, neither of which was cheap. But as the Tokugawa period continued, more and more terakoya, that's what these formerly Buddhist temple schools were now called, began catering to commoners as well. Estimates are that by the end of the Tokugawa's rule, about 50% of Japanese men and 20% of Japanese women were literate and numerate, which was a first in the then-millennia-long history of the Japanese people. In the mid-19th century, when the Japanese Emperor Meiji decided to respond to the invasion of armed Americans with a massive campaign to transform Japan into a country that, well, looked and ran a lot like America, able to hold its own with Europe and the rest of the West, the Japanese leadership of the era figured, hey, better to go that way than the way of, for example, all those folks in Tunisia and Vietnam that Jules Ferry had decided to conquer. Part of that westernization process included the institution of universal public schooling. In 1872, the Japanese government issued an educational order that basically transformed the Terakoya into Western-style public schools under centralized government control, and made education compulsory, but not, at this stage, free. Families still had to foot the bill, and public outcry, as you might expect, was significant. It actually made the government back off a bit on that compulsory part and cede some control back to the localities. The Japanese government hired many Western educational experts, from the United States and elsewhere, to advise this transformational process. But you also need to keep in mind that Japan's Westernization was always carried out with the determination to hold on to Japanese culture and values. They weren't going to become a carbon copy of the West, just a Japan that was able to benefit from the parts of the West it wanted to benefit from. And in 1890, the government passed another educational order to ensure that Japanese culture and nationalism were made central to all school curricula. This nationalism became far more dominant during Japan's imperial phase in the early 20th century, and even as school attendance rose to over 
schools increasingly became mechanisms for indoctrinating children with loyalty to the state and with support for its military conquests. After Japan's defeat in World War II and subsequent transition to democracy, the country adopted a system of schooling much like that in the USA, with highly local control. But in 1956, after the American occupation ended, the Japanese government moved to centralize school curricula and policy once more. So how do Japanese schools differ from American schools today? Oh, well, let me count the ways. I've spent a fair amount of time in Japanese schools, and here's just a smattering of what I've observed. First off, the Japanese school year starts in April and goes until March, with a small break during the summer, although some of this break involves required trips to Kyoto, Japan's ancient capital. So yeah, designing joint activities between my school and its Japanese sister school is always a bit of a scheduling challenge, as the best time for us to travel there, our April break, coincides with the first couple of days of the Japanese school year. Awkward. And vice versa when they come to visit us in the fall. As is the case with England, Japan has no school buses. Kids generally walk or, in rural areas, bike to their school. And Japan is so gosh darn safe that it's not uncommon for me to see six-year-old kids walking by themselves through crowded big city streets with nobody much concerned about their safety. Preschoolers, though, do get a bus. And since this is Japan, I have seen some of these buses actually done up to look like giant cats, complete with a megaphone that goes meow, 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 as it drives on by. Fans of early 2000s memes will be pleased to know that apparently Neon Cat has spent his retirement working for Japanese school transport companies. As of junior high school, Japanese students must wear uniforms, which look very much like sailor suits, except that there are slight variations in designs and sometimes pins that identify you as a student at one particular school versus another. Inside the school, as is the case inside many Japanese buildings, you need to take off your shoes and switch to slippers. Using the bathroom in school requires a change to still different slippers. You get used to it. School bells between periods are these pleasant chimes as opposed to the jarring factory floor-style bells in American schools. And at the junior high school and high school level, students don't go to different rooms for their different subject area classes. They stay, and it's the teacher that changes. Japanese students are entrusted with a remarkable amount of responsibility for school operations. Light to moderate custodial work and even food preparation is all done by students. Seeing tiny elementary school kids wearing little chef's hats as they make the school lunch is both adorable and remarkable, and you see from a very early stage the sense of responsibility for the school being instilled. It makes me flinch when the Japanese students who visit my school see the casual way in which students there just hurl their trash in every which place, expecting the janitors to just come by and clean it up at some point. I will never forget one trip where I brought my students to their Japanese sister's school and one of them got a stomach bug and threw up all over the classroom floor. Immediately, the Japanese kids nearby sprung into action, grabbed towels and mopped up the vomit without even so much as a ew, show me an American school where that would happen. Of course, the flip side of that is the student stress and pressure that Japan is famous for, and it hits at a very young age. That same mad competition for prestigious college admission slots that dominates many American high schools, especially the affluent so-called high-powered ones, takes place between the junior high school and high school levels in Japan, where a series of major exams serve as gatekeepers to elite high schools that then feed more or less automatically into elite colleges. Elite or not, 80% of Japanese students do go on to college. It's almost a given. But getting into the high school of your choice, or your parents' choice, is not. While middle schoolers committing suicide isn't nearly as common in Japan as stereotypes would have you believe, it does happen, and the stress and sleeplessness I've seen is still pretty remarkable. 
A lot of Japanese students follow their lengthy school day with several additional hours of what's called cram school to help improve their chances at that coveted high school admission. But if we're going to talk about remarkable and coveted, I've saved the best, and I do mean the best, for last. Finland. Ah, Finland. Mythical Shangri-La for American public school educators and education scholars, at least us progressive ones. Finnish education has its roots in Lutheranism, which was all about universal literacy so that Protestants could have universal access to reading the Bible. By the late 18th century, Finland had a 50% literacy rate, something unheard of pretty much anywhere else in the Western world at the time. And by 1880, that had risen to almost 98%. Universal free public education was available in Finland by 1898 and compulsory by 1921. Today, Finland provides universal early childhood education, something that other nations like Japan are just now jumping on the bandwagon for. And good luck waiting for the U.S. to catch up with that train. Heck, every mother in Finland gets a maternity package, including three free books to encourage literacy. Although not quite as wild westy autonomous as schools in the U.S., local municipalities in Finland have a remarkable amount of free reign over their operations when compared with most other countries. There is a national curriculum in Finland, but Finnish teachers are very much encouraged to adapt it to whatever instruction they feel is best for their students. And this even includes being able to select their own textbooks, something only American college professors get to do here. And even then, not always. Finnish class sizes are small when compared to U.S. schools, only about 20 students even at the high school level, and second language instruction begins almost immediately in the earliest grades, unlike in the United States when it usually doesn't start until middle school or even high school. By U.S. standards, the classroom environment in Finland is pretty informal and relaxed, and outdoor activities, even in harsh Scandinavian winters, are an indelible part of each day's schedule. Finnish elementary schools don't give tests or quizzes nearly as often as American schools do, relying much more on holistic, mostly verbal assessments. There are no high-stakes exams. In the older years of schooling, Finnish schools do award grades, although the system there is, can be a little baffling to the uninitiated. The highest grade you can earn in a Finnish school is a 10, but the lowest you can earn is a 4. There are gradations within each number also, as follows. Let's say you earn a 7. You could also earn, in increasing order, a 7+, plus, a 7.5, or even an 8-. minus. Finnish school placement is aggressively heterogeneous. There's no ability grouping or tracking whatsoever. Students at advanced readiness levels are expected to help out with the teaching of their struggling peers, and, like in Japan, to help take care of the physical plant of the school as well. Finnish pedagogy is highly constructivist and student-centered, focused on exploration, experimentation, and collaboration instead of memorization and recall. Basically, all the stuff that research says helps students learn best, and Finland's student performance is in many ways living proof. 93% of Finnish students graduate from high school, and their performance officially ranks among the top of the world's nations, although just what slot they hold depends upon the year and on what measures you're using. After age 15 or so, school is no longer compulsory in Finland. Students who stay on for the equivalent of what would be junior and senior year in American high schools choose a vocational, training, or academic track at this point. But there is apparently a wide degree of possible movement between them even after you've chosen, and students can even pursue two tracks simultaneously. I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention that teaching in Finland is a highly respected profession, and extremely competitive to get certification in. Only 10% of applicants to some educator preparation programs emerge with their teaching license by the end. As tempting as it may be to rag on American schools compared to some of these other nations, 
we do need to remember that the USA was the first nation in the modern world to actually pull off inventing and implementing public education to begin with. And we kind of built the train as it was running. The other nations of the world could watch our model and learn from our mistakes and design something better from day one without having to fight the inertia of tradition that accrued in our country. The United States also hews very tightly to this idea of individual freedom, which has been interpreted for so long to mean if you're born into challenging circumstances, you're on your own, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, all that. The general resistance to national or even state centralization of schools since the very beginning, and the general resistance to taxation and public spending that have so characterized our country since the Reagan era have really hamstrung our nation's ability to equalize the incredible disparities between our highest and lowest performing schools. Other nations have their own cultural albatrosses to bear, as I've mentioned in this episode, but this one is all ours. In the end, the question of whether the American system of public education is the best of all possible worlds has a clear answer. It's not at least not evenly applied across all schools in the United States. But the bigger, more important question is, are we okay with that? And if we're not, do we have the political, economic, and moral will to make it better? As other countries' schools learn from our mistakes and successes, we should now be looking over at them and doing the same thing. The first step is looking, and I hope this episode has at the very least helped with that. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, and the grand tradition of underfunded public schools will be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you're in for a treat. Today's fun fact about education. As long as we're talking about Finland, the Finnish Minister of Education also has the responsibility of electronically preserving and distributing all public domain works in the country. Bye now!